time again. Hey, it's your host, Kevin Pollack. Welcome back to another episode of My Mrs. Maisel Pod. Thank all of you for writing to us at mymrsmaiselpod at gmail.com with your questions and comments, questions for anyone who ever worked on the show. I love to read them on the show, and I'm getting to as many as I can, so thank you all for sending those in today. Oh, man. Well... They're all special, but today's absurdly special because I'm speaking with Tony Shalhoub, the multi-award winning, so many awards, too many awards. He's just one of those awards guys. He gets nominated for everything and wins most of the time. And um, Tony today shares experiences and memories and insights from shooting the first two episodes of season two. Uh, yeah, in Paris. Yowza. Paris. Mm. Yeah, so a few of us got to go over to Paris to shoot. Not all of us, he said, still troubled and uh, jealous. So Tony does share a lot. And there's so much to Tony's performances, as you've enjoyed. And so to hear him talk about some of those moments and what these moments mean to him and what this work means to him was a great joy of mine and now hopefully a great joy of yours to listen to. I just love talking with Tony. We hadn't met prior to Mrs. Maisel, which we talk about, the absurdity of that and why we have theories, why we were kept apart. And uh, it's a bit of a love fest, this episode, and uh, it's here for you now. Oh, yeah. Here now as threatened the multi-award-winning Tony Shalhoub. It's too many awards, right? It is. It's a few too many now, Kev. Yeah. Yeah. I put you in that highfalutin uh, Mount Rushmore category with people like Alice and Jenny. And there's a few others. Anytime they do anything, they get nominated for an award, whether it's TV or a play or something. The academies, the, the voting bodies love you and your work. You don't have to say anything in response. It's just a fact. Well, it's an opinion. But, uh... <laughs> Listen, you're doing great work and people are acknowledging it. First of all, I can't believe they kept you and I apart for so long. I know. I know. It's a terrible thing. I tell so many people that we met on this show, and they find that hard to believe. And then I explained to them that you had met my better half, Jamie, at, I think it was Bloomingdale's for Men, maybe, at the um, Beverly Center. Yeah, I think we were both buying you something. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> well, that would be amazing. She said she was in front of you. She was buying something. She turned around, lost her shit, and said, you're Tony Shalhoub. And you said something funny, confirming. Like something said, like, yes. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's always funny. And then she insisted on oversharing, letting you know she was buying something for me. She loves character actors. And your wow. response, whether you remember or not, was, well, let Kevin pay for this then. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning your item. Yes, I think I do remember that. Yeah, which apparently I still owe you $172. But um, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. So, Tony, I'm glad they let us finally meet. And, um, you know, I don't know if I remember telling you, but when they were casting the pilot, my agent did get a ring-a-ding that I was being shortlisted for the role of Abe. Oh. And the caveat was because no one believed the show could get Tony Shalhoub to do a supporting role, having carried his own show for so many, many seasons. Oh, wow. So they put together a short list in anticipation of you saying, go fuck yourself. So what <laughs> that my first question has always been, was it a difficult decision to take on what's insisted upon? And now Emmy. It was, it was. And I wasn't going to take it, but then they told me that you were on the short list. And I thought, <laughs> oh, fuck, Not letting that happen. So yes. <laughs> I mean, I was, you know, we all just had that pilot to go on. Uh, there, the, the show obviously hadn't been picked up yet. And it, I was struck by the, uh, you know, the size of the role of Abe in the pilot. It was really just, you know, a few scenes, you know, flashback. Yeah. But, you know, I, I just, I really kind of um, tend to, uh, well, I, I guess I should say I, 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 what I've learned over many decades of uh, stumbling and you know, stepping on landmines in this business. You know, your decisions really, uh, my decisions really have to be made on, on, on just the quality of the material. And, and you gotta, you know, just let your ego, you have to, you know, just has to take a back seat. You gotta come to that at some point, you know? Yeah. I just love the material. The short answer is I just wanted to 
be in the room when these words were being spoken and when these characters were being, you know, formed and and uh, germinating. Yeah, I, I just thought if this works, if this goes, if there's an audience for it besides me, <laughs> you know, um, all, it seems like all, in all of these positions, all of these actors, all these characters, it feels like they're going to have room to really bloom and evolve. I think I just got that sort of sense when I was, uh, you know, examining the pilot. So I just thought, and then, oh, and then help too that uh, my agents put me on the phone with Amy and Dan yeah. very early on. Had never met them, but you know, I, I knew about Gilmore Girls, of course. And I was just struck by how kind of easy they were to talk to, and and they did reassure me that you know this was just the pilot, and that the character would, you know, would expand as all the characters would. Somehow there was just something very genuine and unassuming in their tone of voice. And that was good enough for me. Yeah, they mask it very well in the first meeting. I found that as well. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) I remember shooting what would be episode two of season one. Right. After the show had been picked up. And I remember asking you what your sense was when you were shooting it. And you said, you must have said this to other people because it's such a great line. Listen, I thought certainly the Jews who lived in the Upper West Side of New York would watch the show. Uh, you know, within like three, four blocks of Zabar's, that would be the demographic <laughs> of yeah. a certain of a certain age. You know? Yeah, and so for season four, it was quoted that we had five hundred million hours viewed. Are you okay with that? It, it, it's astonishing, isn't it? I'm happy. Yeah, I'm happy with that. I have sure. no problem with that. Yeah. Okay. Good. 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 Have you traveled outside of the United States since working on this and heard from, or fans mentioned it while still in oh. the United States who normally live in other countries? Oh, I've, sure. I've had a lot. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Well, you're a world traveler. <laughs> well, it's people who live here or are here. We were just in New York, actually, at the Greek Kitchen. I think I told you about that place on 10th near 58th. Oh, yeah. And a family from... Yugoslavia, maybe, came up to the table and said that they were here in New York on vacation and they were big Maisel fans. And, you know, I just laugh. I just, I can't help but laugh every time it happens. Amazing. How do we enter these lives? I did. I, well, certainly when we went to France to shoot the beginning of season two in Paris, you know, only after, how I many was it like 10 episodes in season one? And, you know, it was like <laughs> over there, people were, Already, you know, they were, of course, recognizing us and they were on board. It was like we were the honeymooners or something. It was really massive there. Um, around that time, after shooting in Paris, we traveled to Lebanon. It was my first trip to Lebanon. I wanted to see, you know, the place where my dad was from. This was, you know, a few years before the wheels completely fell off there. And um, there, too, it was, a, uh, you know, there was, it was Maisel, Maisel all the time. So um, definitely, definitely got the feeling that Amazon had rolled this out in the perfect way. The global. Yeah, because they dropped between Thanksgiving and Christmas, I believe, of 2017. And then we went to work March. We're shooting season two. Would it be March when you went to Paris? It was March. Yeah, but I think that was... 18? 19. 18. Must have been 18. It had to have been 18 because yeah. it's when I was doing Ben's visit. And uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, because we would go on to the Catskills later in season two. Right. When um, I think the Tony nominations were announced while we were in the Catskills. There was some conversation about it that I'm remembering while yelling after Scoop Chaloup, <laughs> <laughs> who loved the Catskills. Oh, who man. had it. And the crew gave him, this is our nine-year-old golden doodle, and the, the crew gave him his own director's chair with, with a, a low one so he could climb into it with yeah. his name embossed in the back there. Not bad. Not a bad deal. Had you worked on camera in an American project in Paris prior? Um, I don't think so. No, I, I had visited Paris a couple right. of times, but I had never I'd never worked there. It, yeah. was, it was the time we had the time of our lives there, really. Yeah. Sorry you couldn't join us. <laughs> well, yeah, me too. So I know my experience of shooting in another country is just such curiosity. How is this going to go? Yeah. How the crew is going to be different. But I'm very also curious what your experience was like 
having not shot in France before, or certainly Paris? Well, that's a good question because you know, there was a lot of, uh, you know, kind of glee and giggling when we were hearing that we were going to be there for three weeks because, you know, you always hear these stories about, oh, you know, in France, the crews, they only work 10 hours a day. Your, your, your days are a lot shorter than the ones here, mm. 10 maximum. And lunch is like two hours and there's wine at lunch. And we're like, wow, this, this is going to be great. Yes. And so, as as with most things, the anticipation was you know, a lot better than the reality. But I mean, it was fantastic. The crew was great, but we did not have ten hour days, and we did not have wine at lunch. <laughs> we we had a little wine, you know, after working hours. Sure, but um, you know, a little, a little half a glass here and there. But but no, it wasn't it wasn't that sort of fantasy that everybody you know that that. that people seem to paint talking about Europe. Right. It was a, it was, you know, it was a tough shoot in, you know, in the sense it was an ambitious schedule as Amy and Dan are, you know, they always kind of lean that way. But damn, I recently watched these episodes, these first two of season two in anticipation of talking to you today. And uh, it's just, it's astonishing again, what they can do and how yeah. first, you know, the plan is fantastic. The script is fantastic. The story is amazing, but, what they then, how, how they kind of like make adjustments and improvise, you know, on the day. <laughs> it's amazing. They found this, um, there's a scene where Midge is walking on the street in the evening. And I think it's after the dinner where Abe blows up. And uh, there's this little ragtag band on the sidewalk and this older woman. And she's kind of doing this crazy little dance. <laughs> and these are people, they they just... They just found them. They just stumbled on them. Yeah. And me, Amy st stayed on that shot for a very long time. And then Midge walks through the frame. We uh, we, we see her walk away. And then the camera pans back to this band and this dancing woman who, that have nothing to do with the story. Right. Except it's just that kind of delicious, unexpected, but perfect, you know, flavor of Paris in 1959. Uh, incredible. Yeah. With the period cars, you know, we have such a luxury uh, in the States. I wonder how difficult it was to find those period cars in Paris. Probably the same, uh, probably similar. There's people who collect them. Yeah, and there's a lot of film and you know, stuff shot there. They have to have access to those kinds of period things. Yeah. I would assume, you know, the, the luxury of shooting in Paris is, is, there's, is almost nowhere. I mean, you, you can go anywhere. And, and it's it, just timeless. It's, you know. You could be in the 1950s. You could be in the 1850s. It doesn't matter. You throw a couple of you know people in the right clothes and a couple of vehicles in there, and boom, you're transported. Yeah, and of course, all the wardrobe fittings for that work had been done in the states. You knew what sure. sort of French beret you would be yeah. wearing, and then it seemed to me, knowing as little as I do, that you were shooting in practical sets. That is to say, real apartments and real cafes and real. Oh, yes. So no soundstage work at all in Paris? Not, not that I remember. That you were doing? Not me. I mean, we, the little, the first little apartment where we stumble across, or that was all location. Mm -hmm. You know, the courtyard area, the, the, you know, those massive doors that you always kind of go through into the courtyard. And that little uh, walk up was very small, very funky, and very, uh, very, you know, a challenge to shoot in because space was so limited. Yeah. And, uh, and then that, Gorgeous apartment on the Seine that Rose brings yes. aid to oh. with the idea that they're going to buy it and live there. That place really was an apartment for sale. It was empty. And there was actually discussion among a group of us. It's like, why don't we all just go in on it together <laughs> yeah. and do it like a timeshare or something? For goodness sake. Amy and Dan included. We were just smitten by this place. It was so stunning. Elegant. It was it stunning. Was. And they and it shot had one it those, beautifully. Oh my God. And there were mirrors all over this apartment. How they did this scene tracking through one room into another without the crew or camera being caught in the mirrors, I still don't understand. I assume that was Jim McConkey or. Uh, yes, it was, I believe. Our brilliant, steady cam genius. Yeah, it was um, Paris. The whole thing was just a, a, an absolute dream. What about the little conveniences that we become so accustomed to in these formerly United States. So we are over there. <laughs> Were there trailers? Were there, what was your um, onset 
I mean, we shoot on sound stages now and we're rarely in our trailers because they set up chairs for us in a certain area. It's got to be a pretty big break for us to go back to our trailers. Yeah, I think we had, as I remember, in most of these locations, we just had like, you know, a, a kind of green room set up yeah. where they would right. just acquire another space for background or for actors would hang out. And so uh, don't don't recall there being actual trailers out there. And all of these little places were, even though they weren't massive places, they were charming. And of course, <laughs> the food, forget about it. You can't go wrong with, I mean, you just have like lunch was, uh, you know, even though there wasn't a wine, uh, unless you brought your own, there was um, French caterer, know, just bread and cheese. I'm good. You know, <laughs> what else do you need? Yeah, a little different over there, the bread and cheese. Very different. And did all the cast and some of the crew stay in the same hotel? Yes, a lot of people opted to stay in the hotel. Uh, my wife and I, uh, she traveled with me, of course, and uh, we opted for an Airbnb in the Marais District. Best move ever. Yeah. You know, we were like the hotel was covered by production, and I'm sure it was less than the hotel. It had to be, cause even though it was like three bedrooms. We couldn't find a one bedroom. You know, we were kind of late to the party. We couldn't find a one bedroom, as I remember, at that time in the area we wanted to be in. So when we said, oh, we'll just we'll look for two bedrooms, and and then we couldn't buy. So then we, we actually ended up with a three bedroom that was still cheaper than the hotel. And our, you know, our friends came over from the States and hung with us for about a week. And oh, great. You know, it was fantastic. We had our, would buy some, you know, groceries and have our own little breakfast there. It was really, really cool. Yeah. And pri very private too. You know, in a hotel, you're, yes. when you're in a production, you, you walk through the lobby and people are kind of like, meh. Yeah. But this was so so serene and low-key yeah you have a home totally right yeah i shot in london in october which i'm sure i've told you at least two dozen times yeah and got an airbnb the same thing just to have a home and, and all the accoutrements yeah the the depending on a hotel for those things is uh good for just a couple days i think yeah, I mean, but when you're three weeks, you know, you want to have a plate. You you want to go open a refrigerator and not just see little bottles of alcohol, you know, and a, and a Toblerone. <laughs> Even though I'm <laughs> Toblerone, nice touch. <laughs> Even though I'm guessing you still got some little bottles in your Airbnb. Mostly wine, but uh, <laughs> 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 when in Paris, as they sure. say. Yeah, and now we bring our own crew, but there must have been some crew that were Parisian. Oh yes, oh yeah. definitely. Yeah, uh, yeah. ADs, uh, you know, the ADs and seconds, I think, went from there. And my transpo guy, he was really great. I had this guy, name happened to be Pierre. Oh. He was a very, you know, a young, great-looking, young Parisian guy. Very cool. Who happened to, ha and he just like picked us up in his little, it was like a sports car or something, you know. <laughs> it was great. And uh, he also had, what do you call it, you know, like Wi-Fi in his car. What is that? It's that thing. You can just hook up your phone. You know, it's great. And he was terrific. He took us around when even when we weren't working and showed us different places. We really, really got to be, uh, you know, pals there. How long has he been living with you and Brooke in New York now? <laughs> he tried to take him back. She did. She did. Yes. Yeah. Well, that was the other thing. I was wondering if some of the crew or some of the day players expressed interest in working in America. I wondered about that, you know, because when you're there that long, three weeks, you do get to know people and you do. There is a sense of family, even though our family's on the road. Yeah. And I, I, I wonder, you know, not that they were. Um, I don't know that I didn't get that sense as much because I, I really got this feeling that we had like the really we had like the first tier people. Yeah. And those people are always going to be in demand and their their jobs are. You know, they're pretty secure. So, yeah, they're booked up. Yeah, yeah. They were super efficient and, you know, warm and <laughs> they got the job. I mean, all you have to do is look at these episodes and you can see that they got the job done. Yeah. So, you rewatch the first two episodes that do involve your time in Paris, but so many scenes that you guys were not in until episode two of season two when you, you the Weissmans come back home to New York. Yes. So watching those two episodes again, even the opening with Midge and the switchboard in the bowels of B. Altman, right? That never, ever gets old. I, I, I remember it really, really being brilliant. And then I watched it again. After Today, years actually, off, yeah. Yeah. And I just thought, 
how do they pull that off? It's, there's no cut. There are no cuts. There are no nothing. They're just there's just magic happening. There's it's a the choreography, this timing. It's I can't. I don't even want to think about how long and arduous that rehearsal period was. But yeah, I've talked Rachel. to others on the podcast cast members about those eight page oneers, as we call them, regardless of what the actual page count was. <laughs> just to round up or down in terms of the amount of time one rehearses. And then shoots, how many takes versus all the coverage. I mean, every now and then we'll get a guest director who does more coverage. And I can just see the cast members just look up and go, here we go. (laughs) Here we go. It's old timey film. (laughs) Or the kind of filming that's happening on every other single television show and movie. Yeah. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah. Yeah. So is there anything that going back to season two, episode one, anything? Other than that switchboard scene, we've got Susie in her apartment. Uh, she wakes up to the phone. Yeah, so good. I mean, it's almost like those episodes are so, I don't know another word for it. They're just so dense. Yeah. You know, they're just, they're just, they're, each scene is full and advancing the story and challenging the, the actors and, and, you know, kind of moving the needle every time. <sighs> scene after scene it, it, it's it, and then there's scene where i think it's episode two i'm thinking about when uh midge comes back to new york and uh there's that scene when Susie's in the bathtub having smoked a joint and bailey comes in yes. comes in yeah that is episode i mean two, that's yeah. just that's just i mean all of these scenes are just yeah it is such gold. Also, the idea of taking Susie out of her element and putting her in the Weissman's apartment in their bathtub. Yeah, it, it, it's just so expansive yeah, of the universe. It, right? It's it, the Prince and the Pauper kind of thing. It's fantastic. Yeah. Yes. And you mentioned Rose, the character of Rose, and what Marn was doing in those Paris scenes. Oh, boy. Yeah. She, when uh, Abe and Midge end up in Paris, after doing some math, that math back in the Weissman apartment of Abe somehow being oblivious and yet completely believable <laughs> the way it was portrayed, the confounded, right? And then showing up there and Rose's response, I did, I loved it so much. And yeah. it made so much sense for Abe to not last very long in this idyllic setting. And what do you mean you're not coming home? So then to pick up an episode two of season two, where Abe is just flourishing, he's got cronies. Yeah. You know, they, they, oh. it's romantic. They have a romantic kind of uh, second honeymoon almost. Truly, truly. Yeah. yeah. But I love the moment in episode one when Mid says, I've missed you, Mama. And Rose. Oh, my God. I, I was just thinking about that. It just, every time, it's just a punch in the gut. And she says, I've missed me too. Yeah. I mean, it's it, and, and Marin is just just so kind of centered there. Uh, it's just it's killer. I mean, that's you know, it just it it speaks volumes about you know the role the women of that time and and in of our time of uh, having to kind of you know just take on these expected roles and sacrifice their time and their skill, their talents and their happiness. You know, yeah, it's, it's amazing. And it was also amazing to me that they got to Rose's journey through that world in the beginning of season two, where they spent pretty much all of season one with a young woman struggling through separation, probable divorce, two kids coming into her own for the first time, it feels like, and what that experience is and that trajectory through the first season. And then right at the outset of season two, we started a parallel path with Rosa. And I don't think anyone was ready for it, not just Abe. As an audience member, it was like, what is happening? Wow. Yeah. 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 And as you mentioned, Rose finding herself and needing to find herself was so ambitious. Yeah. And all of a sudden, we become invested in that character. She's not just the mother of our main character. She's got her own, you know, struggles and her own pain and her own deep, deep feelings of, you know, being confined and constricted and, you know, uh, and, and, and kind of in a way deep grieving her lost youth and her, you know, when she was a student and when she traveled and when she was 
well, liberated, frankly, for lack of a better word, she was yeah. of, a, of a certain class growing up where she could do that and uh, she could be that. And to see her try to, you know, kind of yearning and struggling to recapture that. Yeah, and instigated really. by her daughter's journey yeah. and the character of Rose feeling left out. I want, you're keeping secrets. You, I'm not needed. Yeah. Which sparks that drive. And That's a beautiful scene after the uh, restaurant scene. And, you know, the second or third time Abe storms out. So basically mm-hmm. all my character does. So it's like, get agitated and storm out. But they're on the street and Midge is reprimanding her mother. You know, this is your husband. You can't just leave him. You, you have a responsibility. And Myron just says, well, look who's talking. Yeah. You know, she walked away from her marriage or, or, you know, didn't fight, fight for it. And that's what sort of, again, the, 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 the beauty and the, the kind of wisdom of this show. It isn't so simple. It is, it's, it's all complicated stuff. So complicated. Each relationship to themselves. Like when you mentioned Midge uh, not fighting for it. We have that moment in season one where Joel character pretty much screws up everything and everyone's happiness Yeah, simply because he's miserable. We'll talk about storming out. But when he comes crawling back finally, which the audience thought they wanted, we have Mid saying, no, no, you yeah. left. You left. You're out. And Abe struggled with that yeah. when she has that conversation with him in season one. So, But even, also- but even Abe has to, as, as, as frustrating as it is for him and as, as unconventional as it is, this situation he's conflicted because he sees that, okay, on the one hand, I want her to have a secure, stable uh, marriage and really a family. On the other hand, she's fighting for herself. She's being an advocate for, she's not taking any shit. And that he's, he's, he's weighing the balance and her strength and her desire to be autonomous and, and carve her own way in his mind outweighs the other. It's a, it was a very difficult thing for him to make peace with, right. but, but it's, it's, it kind of speaks to this family. These, uh, it's like, it's like, it's like the Maisels too, like Moish and Shirley, you know, uh, they're all fighters. These people, they just, they, you know what I mean? They don't roll over. They, yeah. they keep because of, you know, for, for whatever reason, because of their upbringing, because of their, because they've been, you know, came through the, the war and, 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 you know, being all of that. I mean, it's, it's, they've had incredibly, incredibly, we see them living kind of cushy lives, but their struggle has been really, really uh, yeah. huge and severe. So I sort of see that. I see Abe, I want to think, I mean, my subtext is that, you know, Abe sees in Midge this fighter that he kind of would love to sort of think of himself as, yeah, I I, I spawned that. <laughs> I fostered that. Uh, even though it kind of flies in the face of, you know, conventional wisdom and conventional lifestyles he's created or he's he's helped to foster a kid who's who's tough and uh, proud yeah and proud in the right way in the sense of having you know feeling like she has self-worth and you can't help but know even from a writer's standpoint that abe is then inspired to follow his own passions and journeys breaking away from ultimately as we see in the late season three and early in season four Right. Yeah. And, and in, in a way, I, I really believe that he's inspired by her, as, as Rose is, in a way. Yep. And they're all kind of taking their, I feel like they're almost like they're given permission to take these larger risks and upend their complacent lives. Yeah. You want your children to thrive, right? Yeah. And then you sometimes the moment they do, they can be very scary. Well, yeah, you, you want them to, you, you don't want them to struggle too much and become, you know, ground down and defeated. On the other hand, you don't, you want them to, <laughs> to be proactive and create, you know, inventive and, and, uh, resilient. And so resilient, that's the, experience defeat, get back up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, in this second episode, in fact, the Joel character has quit his job and we see him working at Maisel and Roth, which yeah. Moish, we, we sense that he might have wanted that, but has to question it. 
and even gets to the point of how do I know you're going to stick it out when yeah. Joel character is, I'm not leaving till I fix this place. And it's not something Moish wanted. It's yeah. barely something he welcomes. And then the sit down with them at the bar is pretty great. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it, and again, I go back to this thing, you know, you and I, you know, we came up or I, I'm a little older than you, but you know, our fathers, <laughs> you know, they wanted, uh, they worked really hard. They carved a path for themselves and uh, they wanted more for their kids. Right. They yes. want, they, you know, sometimes they wanted their kids to follow in the, you know, their footsteps and whatever the business, the family, but, but most often they wanted to, uh, you know, they wanted their kids to, to, to do better and to, yeah. you know, and, and, and I wonder about that. I wonder what Moish gave up and, and, uh, you know, as successful as he is, as, as a self-made man that he is, as much of that as he is, you know, what were his kind of secret? Oh God, if only I didn't have to do this, I could do that. Sort of, you know, maybe he'd be sitting in a tree and, you know, in Malibu playing a flute or something, you know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But, but well, my point is, is that the sacrifices that these, that this generation made and then, you know, for their children and all that. And, uh, and so I think I, I love that scene. I just, I just, again, just watched a scene with you and him and then in the bar and you just sort of get that, I get that sense behind your eyes where you're really thinking, Oh boy. You don't want this friggin' job, man. You know, yeah. I mean, it's it's whether you could stick with it or not. Do I really want this for you? Yeah. Sure, would I love to have you as my right hand? Yes, but do you want to be in this place with these dealing with these mad people? Well, yeah, we get that question evolves and has a resolve in season three, right? And that's where you pass on the yeah. money, right? Uh, Some savings and get the fuck out of here. Yeah, 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 yeah. Pursue your Thing. But that's the thing about Amy and Dan. They keep expanding not only the Maisel universe, but each character's journey, propelling it forward. There's no sitting back. Even if it's Shirley, you know, we, we meet her, she's got pickles in her purse. But And these these books that she's keeping in episode two, hilarious. Of two is hilarious. so funny. But it is a chance to see her role in the Maisel Roth world, which... Yes! Fighter! As damaged as it was, she was not going to let her man, you know, go down and, and also a little bit of oblivious. Yeah, there were some problems. I'm not sure the tax guy came in. He looked, it was fine. Well, he, I paid him. That's why. Yeah. yeah. But you know, that's again, she's a fighter. She's a, yeah. she's, you can say a lot of things about Shirley, but Shirley is no, you know, she is super observant. You know, she may look like she's a, you know, beat her too behind, but she is seeing everything and she knows that she is working. You know, you're in America in this period, you know, you're in business. Hey, there's stuff happening around you that isn't always on the up and up. You have to play the game or you're going to freaking die in the, you know what I mean? You got to, she, she sees what's going on out there. Yes. Is it a little bit of, is there fudging? Yeah, but every, that's what everybody's doing to to make it work. Right. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, you know, being an advocate for, for that, but I'm, I'm just saying <laughs> this is the world that these people have to, you know, the waters that they have to navigate through. It's, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny. And she managed to, to make it funny and kind of endearing and wacky. And Yeah. Yeah. As Arch, as each character gets on occasion, there is a center within them and a grounding that happens organically through the writing and storytelling that never fails them. You know, there's never character assassination on this show, which is almost historical at some point, you know, for a bit or a gag or a, oh yeah. You know, some somebody character. gets thrown under the bus. Yeah. 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 Well, it's, it's like, a. it's fine. It doesn't matter. It's not important. We don't need to answer that question. Yeah. And then nobody will remember it next week. They'll, yeah. they'll forget. Yeah. Amy and Dan seem very, very rooted in uh, the honesty of plot holes, but also character spine and reality. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's pretty amazing to play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm happy we are because as it turns out, life is way harder than we were told. You hear the words mental health used a lot today, and there's a reason. People, myself included, need help now and again. Whether it's pressures and stress at work or, you know, family drama or relationships that are undermining any hope you have at a healthy and positive daily life. Maybe you need help trusting yourself to make decisions that align with your actual values. That 
too, is like anything else. The more you practice it, the easier it gets. I've had dark days like anyone else. It happens. It develops over time. And, you know, it shows up one day as a dark, destructive force inside of you, maybe. And for me, I just needed someone to talk to, a trained professional, someone who will never judge or belittle for just not feeling right. If you're thinking about it, or you're done thinking about it, and you want to do something about it, please consider heading over to BetterHelp.com. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, suited to your schedule. You fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists anytime at no additional charge. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Maisel and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Maisel. How has your experience been in terms of them directing? So the two episodes in Paris, did they take turns? Did each one direct one? Did Amy do both? Do I you remember? think they, they, well, we shot it as, you know, uh, we cross-boarded it. So we were shooting both episodes, you know, simultaneously. Yeah. Uh, so so I think they were, if I remember, kind of so long ago. Yeah. Well, um, it seemed like they were tag teaming, you know, and coming in and out and in and out. Right. But I liked that. I like crossboarding. I mean, we did it in the Catskills, as you know. Mm-hmm. We were shooting three episodes, like a three-hour movie. So crossboarding, you know, three different stories. And that was challenging. You really had to keep it in your head where you were in the... Especially for us who don't really know what's coming. Well, right? yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Normally. Know. Crossboarding, for you folks at home that don't have time to Google search. If they have a location like we did either in Paris or in the Catskills, where you can't spend the whole season there, nor do you want to. and But you're going to spend more than one episode. So you will take scenes in the same location, that location being used over multiple episodes, and you will shoot all the scenes from all the various episodes in that location out of context. Out of, yeah, out of sequence and out Certainly of Certainly out of sequence and no context. So the actors, we do spend a lot of time saying, where, where are we now? Which, which, <laughs> which episode? episode is this? Yeah, it'll be tagged on our wardrobe when we get dressed that morning, but you can only pay attention so much to that. And certainly the dialogue that we learned the night before or relearned it would have indicated what episode it was. But still, there is a disconnect that naturally occurs. Fortunately for the Paris stuff, it was only the two episodes, and it was the first two. And it was a journey for those characters that took place. Yeah. Really, did we map out the time, how long Rose and Abe were actually in Paris together? Was that in the fictitious world? As I remember, yeah. As I remember, I think it was uh, somewhere between like a, 10 days and two weeks or something right. like that. That makes Long sense. enough so that they were, you know, really familiarizing themselves with the, you know, their neighborhood, their you know, they're the places they ate long enough for her to, you know, go to these museums, find this apartment, the new apartment. Yeah. The desired apartment. And uh, long enough for them to do things together and to do things apart. Sure. Which I thought was so smart because you really, you know, I think it would have been sort of unrealistic and corny had it just been, oh, googly eyes and fun Paris things. Yeah, together. that's, I mentioned you and you, uh, Abe and his cronies was so rich and wonderful. And then Abe and Rose would get back together over dinner that she horribly made. And they would tell each other about their day. Yeah. And that's just, that's what could be better, you know. We got a sense that that wasn't happening at home much anymore. No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And even the way the two characters tucked into that much smaller bed than at home and Bonwi, Bonwi, and I love you or a version of that. And his reply is, you're a horrible cook. You know, there's with both with big smiles and nothing but love. Even at one point, Abe asked Simone, the new dog, giving it a morsel from dinner. Can you tell? What, what, this, <laughs> what, is, what did mommy make here? If this yeah. is fish or chicken. <laughs> All of those little nuances, you know, they're such. Uh, oh, he goes, but, well, that's what's so great about that. He goes from wanting to kill this dog. Yeah. When he first sees it, of wanting to kick it down the stairs to wanting to, you know, to feeding it at his, you know, and uh, oh, it's and just, it's the dog it's represented the extension of his anger towards his wife to have landed and instantly made it her home. And it included yeah. this dog. Yeah. His, his dog. replacement, basically. Yeah. Yeah. The dog <laughs> represented a lot. Yes. I love that she pulls the dog out at the restaurant too. Oh. When we're when and brings and they bring the steak tartare. I mean, the fact that she, 
God, there's just something so perfect that she's there. She is sitting with her daughter and mm. her husband that she hasn't seen in a while. Mm. And her priority is the dog. It's sure. it's fantastic. It's so rich and and real. She's taken on a responsibility, and she's also treating a very nuanced and subtle, like a visitor. Oh, yeah. Initially, until she shows him the apartment, I think, before that, he's just visiting. And so, yeah, the dog would definitely have precedent and and her focus as a responsibility and a priority. Priority, absolutely. Yeah. Boy, the Frank and Nikki stuff coming into Susie's life, the two mobbed up guys who take her for a short walk on a long pier and we think it's over. Those scenes are just so great, too. So good, especially that subway scene is gold. Oh, where she, where they discover that she's from Rockaway. And, yeah, and, uh, and then uh, you take know, her home for a meal. Is that place? Is that place still there? You know, we burned it down. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, it's just like it's just it's just a throwaway. It's fantastic. And ended up taking her home for the meal, and yeah, ultimately that's when the decision's made. I guess we're not going to kill you. You know, it's just so perfectly played by all parties involved, but. Alex's choices of how Susie is truly afraid yeah, of these guys. That's what ultimately brings us into the reality of these scenes and the actual stakes, as opposed to, hey, these mobster guys are funny, you know, with their banter and the thing. And, hey, you're not too bad. But it's her abject fear in her eyes, chosen and played so beautifully by also a multi-Emmy award-winning actress that carries the day. Yeah. Yeah. Just such a extraordinary welcome back to season two those first two episodes were really great oh man so good well you just finished watching episode two so i'm wondering if there's anything in there when she was telling him about the rodin museum then ultimately they go in that extraordinary montage that's one of their stops and they're shopping in the marketplace together before they stop on a little bench with a couple glasses of wine and just a baguette and, and a wedge of cheese and he has this knife that he wants to show her and use that yeah. we were also left assuming he was a recent purchase but the details as storytellers and filmmakers i don't know how much you caught of the background people the performers that there's one little group of what seems to be mid to late teens playing a game of some kind that we have no idea what the game is, but they're super enthusiastic about it. It's like on top of what would look like a pickle barrel or something. It's I don't even understand what I was seeing because I hadn't seen it before. Oh, I have to go back. But the specificity of of that was just beautiful. And then when Abe and Rose come across the uh, people at night along the Seine. Oh, man. And dance together. Yeah. I remember there was a big photograph of that when the team came back from Paris that was in the production office. And those oh, yeah. that didn't go, got a chance yeah. to see that. And just, it, it was all right there. Yeah. What were they doing? About, oh, I see what they were doing. <laughs> they were making yeah. magic. They were somehow making a period film as if it were made in the late 50s. Yeah. It was moving watching, especially, you know, that scene on the Seine ends with a long, a wide shot of Notre Dame, Uh Notre Dame in the background. And that was pre-fire, of course. I mean, it all is just so, so much has happened in the years since we started this. So much has occurred in the world and to the world. And yeah. things that have seemed like they've been there forever and were unalterable. Mm. And now everything is not. Everything is different. And it's a bit of sort of heart tug there, too. Yeah. Well, my friend, I don't want to take up more of your time. I want to thank you immensely for taking a look back and sharing some of the insights from your experience. You know, we only have our own. And so it's one of the things I'm hoping to present to fans of the series is, you know, I had Bill Groom on and um, oh, good. and Cindy Tolan talking about some of the great people who've joined us and Donna, our genius wardrobe designer is uh, coming on. So many of the people behind the camera as well. And everyone's insight, you know, is so individual. So thank you for sharing yours. It was fun to go down memory lane with you there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hopefully we can tap into a couple of memories from maybe season three or four and ultimately five. Should we finish shooting it? (laughs) Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, great, pal. I will see you on set soon. Yeah, thank you. Love to the family and you and stay well, please. And, And yeah, thanks, man. We'll talk soon. And there you have it. The wonderful Tony Shalhoub.
Oh, come on. Are you serious? I mean, there's no way not to smile when he talks. That was my problem. My face hurt. The whole time we're talking, or I'm listening, I'm just smiling. The whole conversation. Smiling, laughing, smiling. Yeah, my face hurt. I hope you're still too after listening to that. Sorry. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thanks my whole heart to Tony Shalhoub for sharing all of that. Hey, something was brought to my attention on the socials. Kitty Bruce, the only daughter of Lenny Bruce, who's so celebrated and geniusly and Emmy award-winningly performed on the Maisel Show by the great Luke Kirby. Kitty Bruce needs your help. Yeah. She's um, sort of devoted her life to helping others with alcohol and drug abuse the way her father suffered. And not too long ago, she has suffered her own medical issues and needs our help. If you want to hear more about her and her work and what you can do to help interest you, head on over to givebutter.com slash Bruce. There's sort of a GoFundMe situation set up, but even if you just want to know more about her, you can find it. A whole bunch of information about Katie Bruce and her work online. But as I said, she needs her help, and I wanted to mention that here. So God bless you, Katie Bruce, and you as well, fine listeners. Continue to write to us if you would, my Mrs. Maislepod at gmail.com. And uh, hey, let's open up the mailbag, shall we? Yeah, here we go. Today's fan mail comes from Steffi, all the way from Cologne, Germany. Ah, look at that. Steffi writes, Hey Kevin, Steffi from Cologne, Germany, here with a question. During one of my rewatches of the show, I noticed that in a lot of scenes, especially the scenes where the whole Maisel and Weissman families get together, or also at the stage deli, there is food on the table and each character's plate. Are you really eating during those scenes? How does it work for continuity if there are multiple takes of a scene and the actor has to take a big bite of a sandwich, for example? Do you get a new sandwich each time you have to do another take? And what happens to all the leftovers? Sorry, if the question is a little weird. Maybe I was just very hungry when this crossed my mind. I'm really enjoying your podcast and can't wait for the next episode to come out. Lots of love, Steffi Cologne, Germany. Well... These questions are so delicious mm, that I couldn't think of a cast member more suited to answer than today's guest. So here now, master, multi-award winner Tony Shalhoub to answer Steffi's questions. Hello, Steffi. Tony Shalhoub here. No, we're not really eating in these scenes. We're... We're actors. We're professionals. We're very, very disciplined. We know how to, you know, take small, small bites because we have to do take after take after take. And so it's not really a problem. Sometimes, if you really have to take a bite of something, there's a, um, a biscuit bucket provided between takes, so you really don't, you don't have to really actually swallow everything. Well, you have to sometimes do these uh, scenes for you know, several hours at a time. You know, the biggest challenge is uh, the continuity. <clears throat> Taking a bite on a certain line and picking up the fork, putting down the fork at the same time in every take. Um, as far as the leftovers, most of that food um, uh, Kevin takes and puts in the in a freezer he has in his dressing room or trailer. Um, he, um, I'm guessing he donates it to soup kitchen or food pantry, something like that. Although, if I had to bet on it, I'd imagine he just takes it home. I hope that answers your question. Thanks for writing in. Thanks for watching. This is your host, Kevin Pollock, thanking you, I'll see you in my dreams. Until then, be kind to each other. 
Okay, closing credits time. My Mrs. Maisel pod was created by me, your host, Kevin Pollack, research writer, producer, Jamie Fox, and our engineer, recording, post-production producer genius is Ken Plume. My Mrs. Maisel pod is brought to you by the fine folks at Q Code. Q Code. Sounds like something, doesn't it? Oh, lastly, you should know... I'm told by legal to make this crystal clear that my Mrs. Maisel pod was not sanctioned in any way, shape, or form by Amazon Prime, nor the show's creators Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino, although I feel the need to mention I did get their blessing. Okay, good. That should save me some legal fees. Everyone needs a break from the real world. That's why we played games as kids, and that's why we should play games as adults. I'm Troy Lavalley. And I'm Joe O'Brien. And back in 2015, we started a podcast called The Glass Cannon Podcast, a show made up of comedians and actors playing a fantasy role-playing game. And now is the perfect time to start listening because we just started a brand new story. It's basically Lord of the Rings meets Game of Thrones meets X-Files. Search for The Glass Cannon Podcast on your podcast app of choice. Hey, life is hard, so come play pretend with us. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale. It's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now.